0: Another episode of on Film. I'm Scott. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm confused. <laughs> so confused I forgot my own name. It's quite warm this evening and I'm a Scot, so that's the Scot with the one T. And, and I'm not used to it. I'd, I'd help. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is he's... the most
1: ambitious crossover event in cinema history.
0: <laughs> he's Scott. <laughs> Hello. I am 90% confident that I'm drew. Uh, we'll see whether that confidence interval changes later on or not. Yes. You know what? I'm going to quickly get into stuff that I've already written because my brain's not up for anything else tonight, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> As we've observed before, Hollywood, and the film industry in general, really does love to talk about itself. And there has long existed a small but strong subgenre of documentary that has sought to explore the makings, and occasionally never got made, of films big and small. With that subgenre itself even having a subgenre documenting the fandom or legacy of certain films. For example, Best Worst Movie. So, it's surely only a matter of time until we get a documentary on the documentaries. And then we can do an episode of FUDs on Film on Films on Films on Films on Film. (laughs) (laughs) But for now, this is just FUDs on Film on Films on Film. As this topic was his idea, Scott can perhaps correct me here. But I don't think we chose to do this, and at this moment, for any particular reason despite the seeming recent proliferation alongside the documentary in general that has accompanied the rise of Netflix. Recent examples including Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr Moreau, and The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? As an aside, a colon subtitle in the film's title is so common it almost seems mandatory. (laughs) Why must they all have the same format? I digress. Serendipitously, though, We come to this topic just as Terry Gilliam's most recent attempt to film his long gestating passion project, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, has actually been completed. Although whether the legal wranglings around the film will allow anyone outside of that can audience to see it is currently up in the air. We talked a little about another documentary in a Terry Gilliam film, The Hamster Factor and Other Tales of Twelve Monkeys, when we did our Tech Noir episodes a couple of years ago, But today we're going to begin with addressing Gilliam's first crack at making his adaptation of Cervantes' classic novel with Lost in La Mancha. We will also take a look at Doomed, the untold story of Roger Corman's Fantastic Four, a documentary about a film that did get made, but for various, uncertain and possibly pretty crappy reasons never got released. We'll next talk about American Movie, very much on the low-budget end of the scale we're covering a story of an amateur filmmaker trying to make his dream project on very limited means. And then we're going to finish up with Hearts of Darkness, which documents a film with by far the highest budget of the subjects we're covering today, and which had a legendarily troubled shoot that severely affected the mental and physical well-being of the director and many of the actors, but managed to result in a very highly regarded, successful and award-winning film. Somehow. (laughs) So, Scott, uh, before we actually... Start talking about Lost in La Mancha. Was there any particular reason we're covering this, or is it just a uh, happens to be that we're covering it?
1: Uh, more or less, it was prob- it was bubbled up to the top of the list by the Cannes uh, appearance of the Man killed Don Quixote. Really, so it's it's been on our list as something we could possibly do for a while now. So this was a. Seems opportune a time to do it as any, and as you say, there is a bit of a a golden age of these things. I mean, obviously, there's been plenty of making of documentaries or featurettes going through DVDs since for since the the advent of DVDs and later discs But uh, the, the actual most interesting tales, I think, we've picked some of those here, uh, which can kind of stand on their own as something other than just a look at how CG works in various mm. films, which uh, a lot of making of featurettes tend to devolve into still. So, yeah, no particular interest in other, no, sorry, no particular reason for it other than, well, we like films and it's always interesting to see how films are made and take a look behind that particular curtain.
0: Fair enough, then. So, <laughs> on that note, let's begin with another fi- other, another film that, in fact, didn't get made, hmm. despite several aborted attempts. at it right until now, so Lost in La Mancha, then, about Terry Gilliam's attempts to make The Man Who Killed Don Quixote...
1: Yes, so this was his first real crack at getting it onto film uh, in space year 2000. I think it's been one of those projects that's been knocking around inside Terry Gilliam's head for quite some time. And this uh, was originally intended as a making of documentary and instead became a look at how fragile a film production can be. Now, Terry Gilliam's always been one of my most admired filmmakers, even if he doesn't really make many of my most admired films. Uh, you know, some, sometimes knock it out of the park and come up with something really good but uh, sometimes he doesn't uh, but I'm always glad that he's given an opportunity to actually put something on screen because he's certainly one of the most distinctive um, and imaginative filmmakers that is currently still around uh, so it's always good to see uh, when he's able to do his work so it's interesting to sort of peek behind the curtain in on this one and it's clearly not the best situation to be to, to find himself in which is unfortunate but when you see the, the amount of Design work that went into, you know, behind the man who killed Don Quixote, and you see that the sets that have been putting up in the sound stages and the litany of things that went wrong in it, which is which led to its eventual shelving, and insurance claim, uh, just a really interesting film sort of look behind the curtain uh, for that Lost in La Mancha is, Gilliam's as they mentioned this one has something of a reputation of being a filmmaker whose imagination lets us. His imagination often outstrips his budget, and that can lead to him as- coming to asking for more money. But that seems to be on the back of uh, a production of The uh, Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which was always already in trouble before he got there. So in a lot of ways, it seems a-, a little bit harsh. And when you see that he's put together, or what he was planning and put together for, what, 20 million, I think it said it was, uh, US dollars? You know, really, it seems to have quite an imaginative scope that he's got here. But, um, I think
0: it was about 32 in the end. that <laughs> I think uh, money must have been very much in his mind because he gets very specific at one point. He does say it's $31.2 million or something like that. So I think (laughs) the actual amount of money was very much in his head. But at the same time, the the go to pains to stress that for a European production, European finance production, that was basically unheard of.
1: Yeah. And it does seem to have the scope. And it's... uh... I was actually expecting it to be a lot more problems than what you actually see as part of this. I mean, there's always some obvious ones where you know the sound stage is kind of noisy, which you know, was as bad, but you could work around it. And there was a flash flood, which in the first week of shooting, which took away an a lot of their sets, which was you know bad when they were on the location and had to try and you know rebuild that. But that, none of that seems like it's out with the possibility of working around. But the the main thing that put a nail in the sort of stick, put a stake through the heart of the film was when the Uh, John Rocheford was injured, Uh, basically, I I think he was already injured really before he came up to set, but having someone with an injured spine, I believe it was, um, Mm. putting him on a horse for basically the entirety of the the shoot clearly wasn't going to work. Um, And that is the main reason why this got cancelled. At the end of the day, the the lead effectively could no longer do it. And that's where the, the whole wrangling about the insurance claims came from at the end of the day. So it it must be incredibly frustrating to be doing these kind of things where anything that's going wrong is 100% outside of your control. I can only imagine the frustration that must have when you're trying to put a a film production like this together, The amount of work and design that had gone into it. And To be honest, I'm quite surprised that Gilliam is not far more upset than he is during this uh, than you see him during the the scenes in this film. You'd expect him to be a bit more uh, furious just than I mean, just out sort of the, the general frustration of it all, but mm. oh, um, he approaches it all with a, a fairly level head, despite what is clearly a dream project for him rapidly going down the tubes in front of him. And he must know, you know, when he's when Rochford's away for like two weeks, he must know at that point that it's gone. But he doesn't quite give up hope just yet. But so it's kind of charming to see his uh, spirit going on with that. Uh, but yeah, it, it's just an interesting look at a film and how it can go bad, even when it seems like all the all the pieces were in place, and how quickly that can fall apart with uh, one. Just one minor frailty happening, and yeah, so it's really quite an interesting film, and I heartily enjoyed watching it. Um, not altogether sure I learned all that much from it, but it did give me an appreciation for just how fragile um, the sale of a film can be, even when you've got you seem to have things nailed up, uh, lined up pretty well in advance, and how that can just go washed away like a like like the production of a like a bit in a flash flood. Yeah,
0: I was struggling to for a metaphor there. I feel it. <laughs>
1: Washed away like a thing that is washed away. (laughs) It's it's really
0: interesting. I I like Terry Gilliam a lot, and I I like you, Scotty. He's one of those people, I guess, probably a bit like Guillermo del Toro, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: in that, yeah, I don't always like his finished products, but I really like that he exists, that he's making films because there's very few people like him, and it stops everything becoming boring and samey and uniform. Uh, And I've got a considerably higher hit rate with Terry Gilliam than I do with Mm -hmm. uh, del Toro. But it's yeah, it's it's remarkable you watch this that he is basically not just losing it completely. Yeah. Uh, but really because they go the pains to point out that it is a, a passion project. Um coincidentally, one of two films here in which there's actually an Orson Welles link about his aborted attempt to um adapt this uh, literary work too. Mm-hmm. Um it's kind of consumed Wells for a while as well. He never managed to do it then it's been um, it's not much touched upon in the film, but it looks like Gilliam had been trying to get it made in various ways for, for okay. several years, a couple of decades possibly, yeah. in one way or another. So it's a passion project and he put a lot of work into it. And yet the fact when it does go downhill, it he is isn't just going off the deep end. It's yeah. quite remarkable. <laughs> um, it is. Yeah, it's the fragility is the thing I keep coming back to as well, Scott. Um, I mean, there are things that I sort of thought were red flags at the time, too, um, that just that made maybe would have made the final product bad, but not necessarily production. But things like um, Jean Rochefort as Quixote, which kind of puzzled me a bit because you're taking probably the most famous Spanish literary character and casting him with a person who sounds incredibly French because he's incredibly French and looks like a French person because he's a French person you're casting him in this the major role of this particularly famous Spanish character I thought that was odd but uh, that's maybe mine perhaps that's just that strange thing that that people in the United States I assume that's his main audience they don't think that don't can't tell the difference in accents or something, <laughs> which seems silly because French is possibly the most easily recognizable accent on the planet outside of a US accent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So a couple of things like that that I thought were red flags in terms of the finished product but otherwise, you're thinking, well, I know there are things outside his control that seem to be messing with things like the Vanessa Paradis agent kind of going back or welching on agreements or something. But when he gets his actors there, he's got Rochefort there, who'd gone as far as spending, what, eight months learning English? Yeah. So he could actually deliver these lines well. Johnny Depp turns up and, certainly. You always have in the back of your mind, you don't know quite how it's been edited and why. But if you um, believe that what you see is fairly accurate, then he seems well engaged in the process. Uh, He's interested in the character, that sort of thing. So he wasn't being a problem. And a big star like that, so often you hear that they are. Hmm. But so that's all going well. and You see that he's put in months and months and months of preparation. You see the costume tests and the the script the meetings and then the scouting and stuff. And and like, things go wrong like the the flood. I have not been in the middle of the mountains. It even it was so bad that um it changed the colour of the landscape and yeah. ruined. The, it wasn't just the case of the rain had lost them a couple of days. It lost them their entire location.
1: Yeah.
0: So you see stuff like that and then, but you see it's put so much preparation in it and, and then it is literally what, is it six or seven months before they really start in earnest the pre-production. So you see some of that and then the film is dead within a bit of fortnight. Yeah. <laughs> Principal photography begins and it's effectively dead in a fortnight. How?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> like $40 million basically and it's gone on the side of 40, but 30 odd million dollars mm. and it's gone in a fortnight. Yeah. It's just the, so again, it's the fragility that kind of beggars belief. That they put so much effort and so much work, so much preparation. And then like that gone. Yeah. <laughs> it's incredible. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's, so it's really interesting just from that point of view too, you, cause you can appreciate the great work and enthusiasm that's in there. And then through, no apparent fault of anybody at least not anybody involved in the shoot yeah it just it stops uh, weird but very interesting film uh, and I was certainly very intrigued about The Man Who Killed Don Quixote now to see what it's actually like the the original the, sorry the, the first notices out of Cannes aren't brilliant but I yeah. do want to see it now just to, for completeness sake if nothing else
1: yeah, I definitely would want to see that film. Um, uh, Gilliam's pretty much king of the mixed notice, though, isn't he? Um, yes. I, I don't think he's done a film that has mixed notices. Uh, he's very much a uh, love him or hate him filmmaker. Uh, yeah. I know, each of his films, you you, you would judge that individually. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, I, I would certainly be looking forward to that, even if they'd have to resort to CG by casting Adam Driver. <laughs> <laughs> he's not a real person, I'm sure of it.
0: I have no riposte to that. I can't prove with paperwork that he's a real person, so <laughs> well, you may be correct. I
1: suppose talking of convincing special effects, we move on to the Roger Gorman version of Fantastic Four and Doomed, the documentary of that.
0: Yes, uh, a quartet of superheroes consisting of Stretch Armstrong, Fire Hazard. Okay, I'll buy the magic space mutation, but how is her ability also able to affect clothes? Though I also have the same question about the Hulk and its invisibility, even a superpower. (laughs) Sue, for short. And, um, we've run out of ideas. Rocks, I guess. (laughs) Best known to the world as the Fantastic Four. arrived in the pages of Marvel Comics back in 1961. And, according to Wikipedia, (laughs) helped to usher in a new level of realism in the medium. Which, for me, raises all sorts of questions about comic books prior to this. Um, And they quickly became enduring favourites. Hard to believe now, as they're part of the incredibly slick Disney machine, but Marvel, despite their very popular characters, was an absolute (laughs) show, in corporate terms, for a long time. And their properties were sold off piecemeal all over the place. At the start of the 1990s, when the second phase of attempted Marvel screen adaptations was getting underway, including, just to remind you, such stone-cold classics as the Dolph Lundgren starring The Punisher and 1990s Captain America featuring inexplicable rubber ears (laughs) and the performance from Matt Salinger that makes Dennis Quaid look like Pacino and De Niro combined. (laughs) Rise to the Fantastic Four found themselves in the hand of Bernd Eichinger's Constantine film. Eichinger approached legendary and legendarily efficient producer Roger Corman and asked him to produce an adaptation of the property for a million dollars. At least, that's a number regularly quoted. But the numbers in the film suggest it was more like 1.5 million. Or it was half of that. Or, jeebus, who knows. <laughs> Hollywood accounting is something akin to magic anyway, um, or, more accurately, fantastical, illusory, spectacularly immoral, and almost certainly criminal. <laughs> a script was written, actors were hired, and production duly began... In a condemned, rat-infested soundstage and reusing sets from such classics as Corman's own Jurassic Park, Cash and Carnosaur, and from the beginning, though there were oddities that the cast and crew struggled to explain or understand—a curiously rushed schedule and lack of promotion amongst them—culminating in a passionate and dedicated crew sneaking the print out of the production offices at night so they could do post-production on their own time and often their own dime. While it does cover much of the story of production in a fairly familiar way for these things, it is the mystery of what happened and why that is the central focus of Marty Langford's documentary. He has assembled contemporary interviews with all of the main cast members, the director, editor and several other notable members of the crew and even managed to get some time with Roger Corman himself. But of course Corman is too canny an operator to allow himself to be recorded getting into details of what really went down. There is some archive footage from production, and a pretty decent chunk of footage from the finished article, which is interesting given that the film has never actually been legally released. Doom's central question is also the film's biggest failing though, the what and the why of the thing. The legend is that the film was produced solely in order to retain the rights, with no intention of ever releasing the film. But that's not a theory that seems particularly credible, though many of the talking points are about this. Certainly, however, something was iffy from an early stage, and several theories are advanced as to who did what and why, but the film fails to get to the bottom of it, instead just presenting each player's favourite theory. No doubt this is because no one outside of one or two people, and perhaps not even Roger Corman, know the truth. Regardless, though, it leaves a strong feeling of disappointment and lack of satisfaction with the documentary's central narrative. Fortunately, though, while exploring that thread, Langford has found something at least as, if not more, engaging and that is the passion, excitement and surprising lack of bitterness of a group of actors and filmmakers who thought that the Fantastic Four would be their big break. People like Alex Hyde-White, who played Reed Richards, and particularly director Ollie Susson are engaging, pragmatic and, even given 20 years to cool down, surprisingly sanguine. In the end, it plays like something of an underdog story, and it's hard not to root for them, albeit pointlessly as it's in retrospect. (laughs) These people weren't movie stars, they were working actors. The director and his crew weren't pretentious prima donnas or troubled artists. They were skilled technicians trying to do their best. There are many reasons films fail, or fail to be released, but lack of passion or hard work certainly weren't amongst them on this project. The effects are ropey, the sets are shonky, sure, and some of the performances are a bit... ...earnest. But this version of these Marvel favourites has orders of magnitude more charm than any of the three soulless, turgid adaptations that Fox has pooped out. In the end, what is left is a deep sense of injustice as the secret agendas of the executives and money men mess with the careers and livelihoods of people just trying to do the best job that they could. Um... Which is to say, I quite enjoyed this film, so I would recommend watching it, if yes. that's what you're looking for.
1: <laughs> yes, me too. Um, I don't know if anything, uh, maybe watching this gave me uh, a warmer feeling towards the actual final product, which may not have been legally released, but, well, hello internet! Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you, It's I did, not uh,
0: difficult to find if you wish to do so.
1: Yeah, so I, I did give that a look, and to be honest, you really see most of the interesting parts as part of this documentary, so you could probably save yourself that trick. While I, I agree with a lot of people, it does have more char- uh, heart and charm than the big budget monstrosities that came, I guess in the first case fairly shortly after this. Uh, when when st- was
0: the first um, Fantastic Four? So in like nineteen ninety nine, something around that. Kind yeah, of time, the Fox one, I think.
1: Yeah, um,
0: maybe a wee bit later, two thousand and one or something, but not massively long after.
1: I think we want to check. No, no, it was 2005, actually. Was a bit... Really?
0: Okay, it was a decade after. It, f- it felt like yeah. last time. Yeah.
1: Those didn't really capture anyone's imagination in particular. I'm still not sure how that first one got a sequel. That's, that's sheer bloody mindedness in effect, <laughs> rather than <laughs> anything, anything that the, the quality of it would demand. And while this is chintzy uh, in comparison to the, the, the Corman Fantastic Four version, it's probably closer to the comic books than any of the other stuff was, mm-hmm. um, and certainly more heart to it and more imagination. Uh, And certainly you can appreciate all the works around they've done for the uh, limited special effects they are able to afford. And, you know, they've done their best to stitch this together as a film uh, when it wasn't uh, in any meaningful way ready to be put as a film. Um, It's heartening to see all that kind of dedication and uh, the the commitment they've shown to putting something out that they thought could give themselves a a better break. Uh, Not just the actors, of course, who think that was their, their big break, but the all the people behind the scenes, editors, editors and all that who were looking back yes. to have that in their showreel as well so um, I, I can kind of see why they'd want to go ahead and put this through and try and get this into cinemas and it's a shame that legal wranglings kind of took that away from them uh, but again, you can kind of understand it <laughs> I, mean, I suppose if you're if you're Marvel and you're hard to argue with Marvel's business plan of late they, they've, much as you can disagree with it They've made quite a bit of money and I think, yes. and, and part of that was reeling back in their licenses like this, which had been floating around, um, indirectly. It took them a bit longer to bring, well, they still haven't brought Fantastic Four in, uh, I don't know if they'll bother at this point. Well, this,
0: they're, they're going to do it basically by Disney buying all of, or almost all of Foxy's movie properties. It's, yeah. It was pretty expensive way to do it, but there we go.
1: <laughs> yes. So, um. But yeah, a really interesting film, I'm basically repeating everything you say there, Drew, it's a a really engaging uh, cast, and it's nice to hear them talk about this in fairly measured tones, and uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting story, and I agree completely, it's unfortunate that there's no real answer to it, I suspect the answer is that Avi Harrod was wanting, just didn't want to see something as low rent as this uh, appear when, I think at that point, they... They had at least a plan to get their together and were in the early stages of uh, pushing that through. So, yeah, unfortunately we don't have a, a gospel truth on that, but I think we can read behind the lines and, and get fairly close on it. Um, but regardless, it's just a really interesting look at a film that almost got out and almost was made. Uh, For much less money, you'd expect, certainly given the budgets that go into comic book movies these days. So, yeah, really interesting contrast with what's going on at the minute.
0: Even just for money that goes into a film at all, I kept thinking this during it and watching the actual finished product. Well, finished, you know what I mean? um, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, finished ish uh, final product. That for an individual, a million dollars is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. For a film, particularly a film that has special effects, it's no money at all. Yeah. And the fact that the film looks as good as it does for that amount of money is nothing short of incredible. Yeah. Particularly, okay, the the Fantastic Four outfits, while they do look like the comic books look homemade, but even then, the character makes them herself in the film, so that kind of works, yeah. actually. <laughs> uh, but the, the Thing costume is incredible. Yeah. Nowadays, you can quite easily imagine that costing a million dollars on its own. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean it may just be rubber but there's some really impressive animatronics underneath it it looks really good and it's at least the equal of the thing in the two fox first two fox films if yeah. not better um, and so there's some clearly there's some genuine skill involved here and then a lot of people too that that really believed it like the composers paying eight thousand dollars of their own money to make sure they could have a, a full orchestra to record the soundtrack yeah and that's the the worst thing about this film. You do feel so bad for these people because they thought they were working on something that was going to be their big break. And you can't enforce that, but mm-hmm. at least they thought it was going to be released. Yeah. You know, so they could, they could point to a film and say, ah, look, um, I'd like to go for this job. You know, why should we hire you? Well, look, I did this. And yeah. you can look at it. But the film didn't exist. So, as Aulissa's son points out in the film, yeah, you, know, you can't say, look at my previous work. Well, it didn't exist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you
0: know, when was it released? No, it wasn't. Oh, well, but yeah. it hasn't existed, so you can't use that even if you did clearly very good work on it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, it's a shame to see any sort of effort and talent just well, wasted. If it if it's going to sit on a shelf somewhere, then it is, has been effectively a waste of effort, and it's not like the people involved really cut any corners or were particularly unmotivated to do it. You know, they've really given it as good an effort as as could be mustered, mm-hmm. under circumstances, and it's a shame to see that go to waste. Oh, so, I hope they're gratified by it somewhat, floating out in the black market and comic cons and such like. And of course, uh, the advent of BitTorrents maybe giving it a bit more reach, and it's uh, hopefully giving them something, something of a, a delayed gratification to it. But uh, yeah. yeah, if nothing else, it, it's probably more interesting, I think, if you're a film fan, to watch the documentary "Doomed" rather than the Fantastic Four film itself. But um,
0: Yes, yeah. I think between that and a few, for instance, an uh, episode of Red Letter Media's Best of the Worst where they cover Supergirl, the Roger Cullen of Fantastic Four and the version of Captain America I mentioned in my introduction. Yeah. Uh, and there's, you see enough footage in that, between that and this documentary, relevant, you probably the film's not particularly good. No. Again, it still has an awful lot more watchability than the Fox versions.
1: <laughs> but but so it's a low bar. Yes, that is a... <laughs>
0: That is to damn it with faint praise. Uh, yeah. The um, other thing I would mention in this, um, just that, because I kind of wish there was more of this, is that this film doesn't paint Stan Lee in a particularly flattering light. And from everything I've heard, that is probably the more believable way of Stan Lee. He's so fetid. Yeah. And he's has these little cameo in every, every Marvel film, certainly from the, the MCU stuff. Yeah. And you hear an in interviews he's quite an engaging person but everything you've heard about him is like he's not a particularly nice guy no he's been accused of taking pretty much every other co-worker's credit yeah he's for a savvy since operator isn't he marvel began and, and in this they they show him coming to the set and he talks to them and says oh you're doing a good job and we like it and then you see this footage of him basically completely um stabbing them in the back at comic con yeah. San Diego Comic Con that year. Um there should be a bit more of an examination of Stanley like because he's Stanley's um in, if you were to believe Stanley, he basically created everything. Yeah. He's a bit like the Douglas Trumbull of comic books <laughs> probably more nefarious. Um yeah. I don't really have a, a particularly good way to finish that thought. So I'll just stop <laughs> mid mid sentence. <laughs> okay, Scott. Going from fairly scantily budgeted comic book films to, well, a film with basically no budget at all. Yes. The American movie.
1: (laughs) American movie uh, sees documentary maker Chris Smith, who would later go on to make this year, last year's, I think it was, uh, Jim and Andy, The Great Beyond, which is another really interesting documentary. Um, Ah,
0: is that the one that's uh, behind the scenes of Man on the Moon.
1: Exactly, Um, yes, which I highly recommend. It's not really about filmmaking as much as more about the acting process but that, that's that's very interesting uh but this was i believe his first film uh where he follows uh amateur milwaukee filmmaker mark borchard as he initially tries to start production on his imagined opus northwestern before realizing that this was nowhere near ready uh, to go and falls back on completing a horror short coven which had been in and out of production for years now while american movie is a look at the independent filmmaking scene in a way, and I'm sure many independent movies uh, face many of the same struggles as Borchardt does, this is certainly no how-to guide. And it's, in the end, much more a character study of Borchardt himself. And this, I'd argue, maybe makes it a far more interesting film. Yeah, So, I mean, if you... You were kind of alluding to earlier when you think about the the one million that cover all aspects of a film, and, you know, there's a lot of people scrabbling around trying to make uh, their first features, and for... Even less than that, and basically nothing is they've, they've got in this. And independent filmmakers often have to assume so many roles. You're, you're director, you're also cinematography, you're also doing the writing of it, and all that, all these quote roles you have to do just to get it done. And it's just when you think about overwhelming that must be, even with a relatively smaller scale scope, if you're not going for the super uh, high budget uh, CG laden stuff, you still still an awful lot of responsibility to fall on your shoulders. And it's a miracle that any of this at all gets made, even some of them ending up. Becoming successful and making a career like the likes of, uh, I don't know, Clerks and Kevin Smiths and all that kind of stuff. Uh, for every one of those, there must be hundreds of things that just got nowhere. and While Borchard has the drive and the determination and the motivation to be a filmmaker, he doesn't appear to have any other skill set that would enable him to be able to make a film. So it's, it's an interesting film to watch, and that's. Uh, it's funny in places, but I did feel a bit funny. I did feel a bit sore a bit ashamed about laughing at this guy because while he's I'd argue somewhat delusional in what he's trying to do and uh, the position that he's got himself into, he he just seems so earnest about wanting to make films that it, it's it's tough not to root for the guy. He's quite a likable and engaging presence, and that's what makes a uh, American movie quite a fun film to watch. I think you know maybe been a bit harsh saying that he doesn't have the the. Uh, skill set to actually make a movie. I think he'd probably have... He could have made quite a successful, I don't know, maybe second unit or you know, special effects kind of guy because you see some sort of hints yeah. from other films that he's done where he, he seems to have a handle on that kind of stuff.
0: I think he has technical ability for, yes, exactly, so mm. special effects. You see some of his like 8mm stuff and 60mm mm. stuff in childhood uh, with his gore effects and stuff. You could yeah. do like, yeah, technical stuff like that. I, just, I don't think he's a filmmaker.
1: No, he, he doesn't seem to have the... Um, you know, the personal skill set to to actually deal with the, the logistics and all that stuff. Certainly the, the way that he started to take on, you know, pretty much every aspect of it. You know, you know some people who are supposed to be helping him with casting and other production assistants, but other production assistants basically just seem to be the mates he drinks with, and it, their duties are mainly drinking with him. So it's, it's, it's not conducive to actually making a particularly great film, and... You know, he can't schedule actors, he's got to get his mum in to play various roles and all these other things. It's just um, just a little bit of a sort of self-parody going on almost. But I still think it's a, it's a really interesting film and we, he's actually managed to get some actors in there that are actually kind of interesting. I, I particularly like to the guy, like some kind of Poundland Brian Cox that he's got as part of the uh, the Covenant <laughs> cast. Yeah,
0: I couldn't decide whether that was a real English actor or not. I assumed it was an affectation. Yes. Um... Also he looked very much like Yeah, <laughs> Poundland Van Goghs, I like that um <laughs> that reference. He also he looked very much like the one armed man from Twin Peaks.
1: Yes. Yes, that's as well,
0: yeah. <laughs> he really looked like the one armed man from Twin Peaks. Yeah, but he's it's like he's a kinda of local theatre guy who thinks he's a great Shakespearean actor. Yes. And <laughs> for the whole film I couldn't decide if he's an English guy who Lived in Milwaukee, which is possible, although possibly playing on the fact that he's English, so like mm. thinking that people will think he's more of a thespian, or like half of me thinking, is he putting that accent on? I yeah. couldn't decide if that was real or not.
1: Yeah, it all gets a bit for your consideration at that point, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, uh, but it's. It, I, th- I think this was was quite a fun movie to watch. Um, how much it taught me about the process of filmmaking. Mm. Yeah, not that much, but it's, been, it's a really fascinating uh, look into the the psyche of this uh, Mark Borkart character. And he's bless him, he's still trying to make films, at least as far as his IMDb and Wikipedia pages are, are, are claiming. So, you know, at least he's not giving up on that dream, even if it does mean that he's spent, by this point, what, 30 years doing a paper round, effectively, <laughs> as his main source of income, uh, which, I don't know. You might think this is the universe movie telling you to move on and try something different, he said without a hint of uh, irony. <laughs> but he, yes, it's just uh, quite an interesting um, movie on that basis. As I say, not something that's a, a how-to guide for independent filmmaking success, but certainly look at the flip side of that when it all goes horribly wrong. Um, and also is, I'm really charmed by his um, uncle, uh, I think it is. Who's, uncle Bill.
0: Yes, yeah, I like Uncle Bill.
1: Who is probably the finest actor I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Just the bit um yeah, Uncle Bill's one was probably my favourite part of it. Um there's um he's just kinda of like this crotchety old guy who I actually would have loved to have seen more about Uncle Bill because yes. he said he's got he's saying he's got two hundred and eighty thousand dollars in the bank.
1: Yeah, which I initially yeah. thought, no, you don't mate. and then oh, seems like he does.
0: <laughs> well yeah, like well, because does. yes, but at the end of the film he left Mark what to, it wasn't as much as hundred thousand dollars, I I it's fifty, like, I think. Fifty thousand dollars to make Northwestern. Um, which is a hell, like a hell of a generous firm to do. Very nice of him. Yeah. Uh, he clearly did believe him and in the end. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm watching this guy and I'm thinking, you're living in this kind of ratty trailer
1: yeah,
0: in a trailer park and you are eating terrible food and it's not very clean and you've got terrible clothes. Why are you doing that if you've got $280,000? And then I thought quite quickly afterwards, I suspect he's got $280,000 because he spent his entire life living in a trailer, yeah. eating crappy food and not caring about stuff. Because you get people like that. Um, I guess the best word is miser. Mm. Um, but he's he's lived very, very frugally yeah. um, for his whole life. Utterly pointlessly, of course, because what are you going to do with the money when you're dead? You're dead. Whereas you could have had a much more enjoyable life. But he's a fascinating character. And he's quite crotchety. But, and you think... Some of the time you're thinking he's not sure what's going on, but he's like, no, there's a there's a steel trap of a mind going on under there.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> and I think he's just laughing at the world behind that and and he's getting fed up of they do get up to like take fifty or something on one line that they're trying to get him to read. Yeah. And then he just goes, "No, that's that I'm not doing anymore and drives away
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And and again it, it, it's easy to sort of make a bit of a comedy figure out of Mark chart, but again, he's He's in there dedica- dedicated to trying to do his thing. He's in there cutting, coven uh, you know, on the night shift between was it, one of the university um, film production reels, you know, stitching this together in the old days by you know with actual film and uh, film and sellotape. tape. Um, and he he's putting hours in. He's getting the work done effectively. Um, he's he he's got the drive for it, and he's putting hours in. It's just that the results don't seem to be particularly worthwhile doing at the end of the day. Uh, but you know he's he's trying and there's a I can respect that and I can applaud that um, so that's that's good for him I, I'm I'm pleased that he's he's doing that and presumably getting some sort of joy out of it um, even if it's probably something that's never going to be a mass market success.
0: I am a little torn on this film. Seems clear that I didn't get as much enjoyment from it as you did and I didn't mm-hmm. find it particularly funny. But the big problem I my certainly. Mark seems dedicated to making his film, which is to be commended. And as we mentioned earlier, he clearly has some sort of technical skill. He can like do a good effects shot, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I don't think he really has the vision to to create a good script and to have like to do the overall thing. I can see him get a job in the film industry, yes, in special effects, as you said. Scott, has got something like that. The problem is, I just right from the start, I didn't warm to him as a person. Yeah. And that's a problem. That's one of the main reasons I didn't get an awful lot out of it. Because I kind of thought he was a prat. And then it's perhaps around the halfway mark, but he, he keeps going back to after that. Basically seems to think that he's better than other people. And he very clearly states things like that he's better than other people because he wants to make this film and that people who are just doing a regular job are basically losers. And it really, really turned me sour on him.
1: Yeah, that is one of the uh, more negative aspects of his character. Yeah, he, he does have a, a certain degree of unearned arrogance. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: Um, fortunately, in terms of the humour things, though, it, a lot of that was saved by his best friend, the guy that's on the cover with him. Yeah. <laughs> because I, every time he's on the screen, I, I was like, I was just saying, are you on? <laughs> have you been plugged in? <laughs> Hello? Earth to man. (laughs) I'm not convinced he knew at any point in that film which covers. It's about a year covers, I think, isn't it? Um, Plus some archive footage. But at no point that you see him, I don't think he was aware of what planet he was on, what he was doing, where he was, or indeed who he was. Mm -hmm. He just seemed really, really happy that he'd bought lots of drugs and bought lots of scratch cards but the rest of the time you, are you switched on? Have yeah. you tried turning yourself off and on again? At the <laughs> <laughs> and so I got quite a lot of amusement out of that guy because he's a he's a strange man. <laughs> um, yeah, There doesn't seem to be any particular malice in him uh, so I didn't have the problem with him that I had with Mark but yeah it's Mike, is he Mike? Uh,
1: yes. Is he Mike right. Shank? I think. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that guy's just okay. It's like he's such a kind of it's even it's beyond stoner character because I don't know how to describe him well because there was no believable way to describe that you think he was an actual person because if he was a a character in a fiction, you would think, yeah, this person needs to have any characterization at all, and it's, I just don't <laughs> buy this guy. Whereas like he's a real person. <laughs> He's a real person that the universe apparently forgot to write. (laughs) So I I had quite a lot of entertainment from that. But yeah, certainly in terms of learning anything about the craft of filmmaking or the struggle to make films, I'm not particularly sure I got anything out of American Movie. No. But Uncle Bill, though. Uncle Bill was great. And his mum's a saint because the patience she must have, the way he talks to her.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it it, it does get into... Almost touching on what seems to be like borderline, if not personality disorder, some sort of alcohol addiction, or easy, certainly there's something bubbling under the way of this guy that's uh, not quite, uh, not quite right. But it doesn't quite go into any depth of that. But yeah, there's. I think there's there's certainly issues that that need to be addressed with his behaviour.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah, yes, um, yeah. So not one that I would particularly recommend, but it's. It's really interesting. It has interesting moments in it.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it. I yeah. would give it a round. I, I recommend it, though.
0: Shall we move on, Scott? Yes. Uh, to, to very much the other end of the budget scale here.
1: Yes, other end of budget and success scale with uh, Hearts of Darkness, which is about a little indie film called Apocalypse Now, which is very, very much the other end of indie filmmaking.
0: It's, indeed. It's, it's one of those low-budget things like Infinity War that we talked <laughs> about last yeah. episode. Hearts of Darkness, Filmmaker's Apocalypse. The colon and subtitling in U.S. even in 1991. <laughs> Documents the troubled production. 238 days of principal photography for one film. <laughs> uh, of Francis Ford Coppola's Vietnam War epic apocalypse now. A sort of apocalypse then, if you will. <laughs> oh, you won't? Well, screw you, buddy, I've got the mic. <laughs> Sorry, but apparently the heat and humidity sent everyone in the shoot in the Philippines a bit screwy. So I'm just trying to get into the mood as I'm a bit warm in this room. <laughs> Many of these types of documentaries rely on often after-the-fact interviews, and even those with an on-set presence struggle to convey true feelings. Of those we've covered so far tonight, only American movie really has felt like it contained any truly personal or unguarded moments. What sets Hearts of Darkness apart in this regard, at least theoretically, is that the production footage was taken by Coppola's wife Eleanor and features candid audio from the director, also captured by his wife, that he didn't know was being recorded. This audio was, it is claimed, to be used only as a guide for the production diary, but its use gives a rare insight into Coppola's thoughts at the time. Looking for the next big project after The Godfather and its sequel for himself and his production company American Zoetrope, Coppola settled on Apocalypse Now an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, written by John Millius, and originally planned to be directed by George Lucas, and was a project which had also inflamed the passion of a pre-Citizen Kane Orson Welles, though even then its lavish production scared off the film studio. Apocalypse Now became a legendarily troubled and chaotic shoot, with the original lead Harvey Keitel Sack, his replacement Martin Sheen suffering a near-fatal heart attack at the age of 37, Tropical Storms, helicopters hired from the Filipino government whisked away with no notice to fight communist insurgents, 14-year-old actors who lied about their age, other actors drinking and consuming large quantities of drugs, huge budget overruns, constant rewrites, and, often, shooting schedules which declared more or less Christ knows, I guess we'll make it up when we get it to set, <laughs> and a truculent, expensive and woefully unprepared star as the antagonist. Despite this, most of this film, alas, did little for me and for all its proclamations about Coppola following the spiritual tormented descent of the characters of Conrad's novels and the director's own assertion that we were in the jungle, there were too many of us, we had access to too much money, too much equipment and little by little we went insane I don't think the film really demonstrates that in any meaningful way. It may tell us that the jungle drove them crazy but it just doesn't show it. However, it is in the film's final portion that things really pick up and an element that could truly be believed to have driven people crazy is introduced. Legendary actor, and, if preparation for this episode has taught me anything, total douche canoe, Marlon Brando. (laughs) Willfully unhelpful, truly undersells Brando, especially when there are so many, much more apt epithets, many of them sharing a combination of rear quarters and various items of headwear. That the film was so successfully completed, and Brando's performance so striking and memorable, is pretty good grounds in which to dub Coppola genius, and also to marvel at his iron will and patience. And that's good for Coppola, because much of the rest of the film doesn't paint him in a particularly flattering light. Flitting from childish tantrum to wallowing in great troughs of woe is me, the great and troubled artist, self pity. And, of course, his deeply caring. Even if he dies, I don't want to hear anything but good news until it comes from me. If Marty dies, I want to hear everything is okay until I say Marty is dead, after Sheen's heart attack. As an audience, we might feel considerably more sympathy to the unravelling of his grand plans if his response to the immense cyclone which battered the Philippines during shooting, killing hundreds and displacing thousands more, wasn't presented here as... Some of our sets got a bit broken. Wah. (laughs) <laughs> it has to be said though that coppola clearly had a vision and despite genuine difficulties and setbacks he brought that vision to the screen though whether that merited a 49 minute longer version of an apocalypse now redux is debatable but hey this could have been a george lucas film <laughs> because of him speaking about it earlier this will sound Scott like i'm being passive aggressive i am not i'm just angry at the whole world it's pronounced redux the word is redux from the Latin reducere, and anybody who pronounces it redo is a moron. Sorry, these things bother me so. <laughs> I had originally been going to say that I have too many problems with this film to recommend it to a general audience, except for fans of Apocalypse Now. But with a few days' thought, I think it actually put it up a notch, as I think Hearts of Darkness does a better job than many films in the genre of really showing how a film got made, and also very nearly didn't. Hmm.
1: Yeah, um I'd I would certainly recommend people watch it. If you're interested in films and if you're listening to a film podcast, you're probably interested in films. So, so, yes. I, I think if you are going to recommend it to any audience, it's probably going to be the people that listen to stuff like this. Now, largely what you're saying, Coppola doesn't come off particularly well in it. Um I guess you can kind of see part of that as just him being so wrapped up in this and being so involved in it that he's not you know, he's got the uh, the shutters on, he's he's not quite seeing the wider scope of things, but it does come across as obviously incredibly crass and sensitive when, the, yeah. when, you know, you know, when things like Cyclones striking his only concern is what it's doing to the, to the the film production and the way that he's pushing actors to be, go out in limbs that I'm not 100% sure they're entirely comfortable out in being and things like that. You know, at the end of the day everyone signed up to this with, with their eyes open I don't think there was really anything that was a there's, there's no impropriety here uh, in, in terms of things like Martin Sheen's performance and uh, yeah the, the most interesting thing the, the thing that really picks up to me was I was kind of enjoying it okay for the hour or so where it's getting to it. but it's when Brando appears <laughs> in his trademark of Brando style and when you see what he's working with there and the fact that he managed to in the edit get anything useful as an ending I know when, when basically you know, a compliment himself was kind of admitting he doesn't, didn't really have an ending he was just getting Uh, Sheen and Brando in the same room and having them sort of just bounce off each other and see what comes out with it at
0: the end. Uh, Basically, yeah, they say that Brando not only was unprepared, (laughs) he had never read Hearts of Darkness. Mm -hmm. Is clearly massively disrespectful of other people's time and money, Mm -hmm. um, which I found very much from another film that um, I may mention a minute, particularly cover for this, but I did watch anyway, and that. The only way that Coppola can get anything is basically, yeah, three weeks of improvisation. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I suppose in one way it proves that Brando is a fantastically gifted actor. I don't think that was ever any doubt, but mm. he's a pretty terrible person. Yeah. <laughs> but how Coppola got anything usable out of that is, quite frankly, beyond me.
1: Yeah. Um, and it, I did watch uh Now... Radox, I think you said it should be pronounced. Thank Rado- you. Radox, right? Yeah, Radox, yes, it's a bubble bath. bath. Yeah, so I watched the Apocalypse Now, matey uh, after this and uh, it, it's too damn long. Matey. So I just
0: realised what you said It's a long time since I've thought of Matey Scott. Children's bubble bath of the 1980s. Yes, I think you still exists.
1: Yes, it's a sort of deep cut bubble bath reference you can expect from this podcast. <laughs> um,
0: we've got our pulse on pop culture's <laughs> wrist. Um, we've, got, we've got our no, we've got a think pop culture's pulse. Yes, I can't even speak. I'm so thrown by the major <laughs> reference.
1: <laughs> and it, it, what struck me is it the bits that seem to be, and I, I must admit, it's been so long. Like yourself, was mentioned when I am talking about this before. It's been so long since it's all the the non, uh Radox version of Apocalypse <laughs> now that I I can't really remember it. So, uh, but it did did appear that all the things that were added in to the longer version was the things that he was unhappy with and mentioned during the hearts of darkness uh thing you know when he's he's talking about the, the scene in the french um plantation, the plantation with the, scene, yeah. the, and the dinner that never seemed to work out properly i think all that was excised and then added back in but that's, that's <laughs> quite a big chunk of that extra you know, nearly hour that went into the film again um so it's very much stuff that he didn't like that is now put back into it and i don't think it really made it any better a film it's just longer, it made it, almost feelingly long. It, it
0: made it longer, <laughs> Scott. That's, um, it really should be called Apocalypse Now, Red Docs, because it's three hours, 15 minutes. You probably want a nice relaxing bath in that yes. time. <laughs>
1: but, but yeah, it, it was certainly something that that shed more light on that process. So... Um, it, it does kind of work on that basis as well if you want to see what a director coming back to a film you know, years later and, and thinking about it again and seeing to kind of change of perspective because presumably he must have changed his mind on that and I'm assuming he didn't just recut it on a whim um, as something to do one afternoon he he must have thought that he's changed his mind on what, what constituted an important part of the story and I'm not entirely sure he's right about it <laughs> <laughs> but who am I to argue um, I didn't make the film so yes, I mean it's certainly uh, if you're a fan of, of Apocalypse Now, then it's a highly recommended viewing. But I think in a more general terms, even if you're not a fan of that film in particular, it's just interesting to look into the filmmaking uh, process, particularly when things you know eventually, eventually go right. I mean you can't argue with the results of Apocalypse Now. You know, it's a film you don't if you don't personally like. Um, it was it's obviously very uh, successful and influential, and uh, it's very interesting to see the, the the creative process behind that, particularly when it's so. Uh, storied, shall we say. Yeah, I I, I would recommend this as well to anyone. Um, There's nothing here that I particularly disliked and I think if you're, as as I say, if you're the kind of person who's interested in films and the making of films, then I think all of these have something to recommend to them in various uh, forms and are well worth your investment of time if you can get hold of them.
0: Yeah, I... The one I'm least interested in is American Movie but of the films we have talked about, Scott, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't particularly dissuade anybody from watching it, any or all of them actually are pretty interesting in different ways. Yeah. And actually I'm I'm gonna just very briefly add a couple. We had originally be going to do Lost Soul. The it's another one of these ones with a ridiculously long subtitle. Lost Soul, the doomed journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Doctor Moreau. Um (laughs) which Craig watched and didn't like and warned us off of so we actually swapped that out Hearts of Darkness. I watched it anyway and I actually quite enjoyed it. Now one of Craig's issues was that it was, he said it was two hours of Richard Stanley completely failing to justify how his his adaptation of The Island of Doctor would not be a complete cluster cuddle. <laughs> uh, and he's absolutely right, but I still actually kind of find it entertaining because Richard Stanley's barking mad. <laughs> uh, and when he begins talking about, in absolute earnestness, about how his film got made, it, it was, he got like the the job to do the film because of his friend doing witchcraft for him and he's absolutely serious about it. I'm like, <laughs> right, I'm on board because this guy's crazy, brilliant. <laughs> and then later on, it was like, he blames witchcraft for it all going wrong as well. <laughs>
1: uh, witchcraft giveth and witchcraft taketh away.
0: <laughs> that's it, that's it. <laughs> it's, the, it's the truth of the universe. You need to be very aware of Scott. And so I actually found that real intent and there is, and actually, there are a couple of links to films we're covering, we're actually covering this podcast. One is that Orson Welles was also on board to do The Island of Dr. Moreau at some point. Uh, well, no, so not... No. Sorry, I'm getting but my head's so i think, yeah. Well, no, but there, yeah, there is a connection, a bit because the story, The Island of Dr. Moreau, HG Wells was really annoyed by Joseph Conrad, because he basically thought Joseph Conrad stole The Island of Dr. Moreau for Hearts of Darkness, <laughs> but then... Joseph Conrad said that the, the the Kurtz character was actually based on Henry Morton Stanley, the famous American explorer, journalist fellow that went looking for Livingston, um, who is in fact Richard Stanley's great grandfather <laughs> and that Orson Welles was also involved in making trying to make an adaptation of Hearts of Darkness but then Marlon Brando was in an adaptation of Hearts of Darkness and in the adaptation of Island of Dr. Moreau. Just, <laughs> I, I find the connections all quite interesting, That's yeah. what I'm saying. But <laughs> the second part is that Marlon Brando's a total douche canoe, as I mentioned earlier, <laughs> because um, he turns up, again, like in Apocalypse Now, with a staggering salary for agreeing to do basically three weeks' work or something, Yeah. Um, turns up, isn't prepared, wants to change everything, and is just a complete pillock on the set of the Andor- on a film that was already an absolute mess and had already had Val Kilmer on it, who was <laughs> particularly at that time regarded as being one of the world's premier pillocks. And then Marlon Brando turns up on set and starts wanting to do a completely crazy thing. <laughs> I, couldn't, I, I creased myself laughing. Marlon Brando said, right, how about this for the ending of the film? That, because for some reason he wanted to wear a hat for the entire time he was on screen and said, how about at the end of the, the film Dr Moreau takes um, takes the hat off and you find out that he's actually a dolphin. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I creased I, myself. How would that work? I don't care! <laughs> I
0: just wanted to have happened! So it's full of stuff like that, but um, so that uh, I'm sort of liking... <laughs> marlon brando and uh, some of the people are talking some of the producers are saying right figure that marlon brando was basically messing with us mm-hmm. and if he had been i would almost have been on board with that but and so you see that's like he's taking the piss right <laughs> and then he says but then he, he starts with all this other nonsense and he's he refuses to come out of his hut and then he spends like the entire day just talking to john frankenheimer then he never actually produce and he's wanted to re-change everything and he he can't stand Val Kilmer, so those two people are never getting on. Um, And then I'm thinking, yeah, but you're being completely disrespectful of other people's time and money and livelihoods. These actors have been stuck in this um, remote part of Australia for months now and they can't actually finish their job because you've decided that you're more important. Hmm. You're getting paid millions, um, but apparently these people who are just on the standard salary for like equity actors or whatever kind of stuck there and they're not allowed to go back to their families yeah so it's, it's like you know i don't care if you're a good actor you're a pillock brando um <laughs> so that's kind of the the interesting aspects of that film so i actually unlike i would recommend a lot of soul because there's so much barking mad stuff going on. and that line about the dolphin is one of the best things i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> but uh yeah that's probably worth checking it and i did watch also the death of Superman lives what happened. it was a really awkwardly punctuated title that uh which is the story of what would have been Tim Burton's Superman film from which was scheduled to come out sorry, in 1987 time was replaced instead by Wild Wild West because it was Warner Brothers then and now mm-hmm. don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, I think they just locked into the uh the Lord of the Rings film through their subsidiary New Line because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, nearly <laughs> uh, a subsidiary. They said they've got a long-standing um, relationship with it. Anyway, but that's uh, actually a really interesting film about all the the work. Kind of like Lost Imagine about the love of pre-production work that went out for an interesting film whose films I don't always like, but again, I appreciate that they exist. Yeah, because they make distinctive, interesting films. And so, if you have a taste for any more of these sorts of films, definitely get a check out what happened to Superman lives if you can it's pretty interesting and uh, there's as I was saying to you earlier Scott there was this photograph that was quite infamous of Chris, uh, sorry, Nick Cage with the long hair and the, the half finished Superman suit and the kind of really dopey look in his face it was so disingenuous because was, he was taken, he was a still taken mid blink from a costume test a screen test um, and it's actually, Nicolas Cage would have been quite an interesting Superman and it may have been a mess but it would have been an interesting mess and it would have been certainly more appealing than most of the Zack Snyder stuff I think Yeah. Um, so yeah if you've got a taste for these sort of films I would recommend that one as well because it's a really interesting look at the work that's gone into it, there's some really interesting ideas, some really interesting concept art mm. that you I was like yeah you know what, this would probably be a horrible mess but I really want to see this film now Yeah. which is what the best of these things can do I think is make you really interested for a project that never actually came to fruition yeah I suppose, you know, the island of Dr. Moreau because Lost Soul makes you think, yeah, definitely not watching that then. <laughs> <laughs> I'd heard it was bad, now I see why.
1: Uh, I guess i'd are throwing a recommendation for other things, I would... We already, I already mentioned one that I think is worth looking at, The uh, Hamster Factor, which is the making of the Twelve geese, Yes, absolutely. It very good. If you're talking about... Uh, pre-production art and such like, then you've got to give a, a nod to Jodorowsky's June, which we'll probably cover in some form eventually. I'm, a, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping this actual you June know, film does actually happen with um, uh, what's his face, your director fella, oh, Villeneuve. Um,
0: so yeah, I'd forgotten that Denis Villeneuve had um been associated with a, an adaptation of June. Yeah. So um, is they're it, is it working on. Is it kind of based on the Jodorowsky? Idea? Is no. It um, that oh, n- g- Lord, no! <laughs> and
1: it's worth watching Joe house just to see how how bananas that would be. And I don't think uh, I don't even if I would look anything like it. But uh, yeah, it's it's a really interesting film as well. To look at and um, while we're talking about Blade Runner, I suppose uh, if we feel you. Then there's a Dangerous Days, uh, the making of the original Blade Runner as well, which is also quite interesting if you're into that sort of thing. Excellent okay so uh, yes that will take us to the end of this podcast we'll be back in 10 days i so will look at another couple of films uh, but until that time um, if you want to get in touch with us you can do so uh, probably on the twitters would be your best bet or, or on twitter at fudsonfilm or you can do so on facebook facebook.com on fudsonfilm nothing on the Twitters, right oh yes until next time take care of yourself and each other I've been Scott Morris and Drew Davendale has been Drew Davendale undeniably so Fairly talk.
0: well. <laughs>